Tom Talks are brought to you by The Grant Rant, a Hanover Research podcast. Join senior grants consultant Tom Kuhn for chats with the Hanover team about upcoming programs, interesting opportunities, and more. And be sure that you check out The Grant Rant monthly for our regular episodes. Well, we're going to be talking about Department of Education basic needs today. Um, I'm joined by Tom Kuhn, my uh, co-host for these segments. Hey, Tom. Hi, Mallory. Thanks for joining me. Uh, Always. And uh, we have our star of the show here today, uh, Grants Consultant Susan Perry. Hey, Susan. Hey, thanks for having me along. Absolutely. Susan, have you been on the podcast previously? I have been, and I think it was another ED opportunity. It was a trio grant, um, but I'm forgetting which trio. Maybe it was Upward Bound. Maybe it oh, was Oh, some- I think it was. Yeah, I think it was Upward Bound. Well, great. Well, welcome back. You you are our Department of Education uh, expert, so we're thrilled to have you here because if Tom and I had to talk about this by ourselves, it would be lots of dead air and lots of Googling. So thanks for joining. <laughs> do that. Do that. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, let's start out with the basics for basic needs. Um, what is it? <laughs> That's just kind of like the biggest question that I could possibly ask. But um, I I don't think I've been shy in saying that Department of Education is not my ballywick, and I very rarely have to engage with it too much. So give us the lowdown on ed basic needs. Right. So it's a new new-ish grant program. Uh, It operated its first cycle last fiscal year, 2021. Um, So this is only the second cycle for this particular competition, which the department developed in response to primarily, I think, um, the pandemic and the basic needs or shortages of those basic needs that the pandemic highlighted in the college student population. Um, So, you know, the general purpose of the program is for, it provides funding for institutions to coordinate access to services that help meet the basic needs of students. And that will vary depending on the institution and the student population. Um, But essentially, uh, it encourages institutions to coordinate their own internal resources and develop or leverage existing partnerships to meet those identified needs. Okay, so when COVID hit, um, I remember there was a program and I'm going to botch the acronym. I want to say it was HIRF or HIRF. (laughs) That's it. Oh, I got it. and kind of what that was about was there were two components to that. There was the institutional component, then there was the student component. And that was kind of like providing sort of what you're talking about, correct? But it was like one-time funding. Yes, exactly. I believe it was the Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund, or here, which came out of CARES Act funding. Um, and that was to help colleges serve their students, um, minimize disruptions to regular life, and um, also keep the lights on. So, uh, and and that's actually a pretty good data point that applicants can use with this grant opportunity um, to be able to describe what the unique needs and challenges are for their institution and their institutional community, how they dispersed those CARES Act funds, uh, you know, whether they made emergency grants to students, whether they helped them with food or housing security issues, things of, of that nature. 
but it's a pretty, um, it's a competitive grant, uh, like most ED discretionary grants tend to be. I believe last year, the first cycle, there were only 37 applicants, strangely enough, but just six awards. This cycle, they're anticipating a couple additional awards being made for a total of eight uh, awards anticipated. It's a three-year grant period, uh, $950,000 total award over a three-year grant period. So, Susan, we hear you talking about things that you have to include or, you know, that you should include in these programs and how competitive they are. I, I know from my limited experience with the Department of Ed, sometimes you have to score well in excess of the maximum points, right, with the bonuses and priorities and other things. Can you share with us a little bit more about, you know, things that uh, applicants should include and how they can be and plan for a successful application? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are two absolute priorities for this competition cycle. So applicants have to address um, those priorities both absolute priorities. And then there's one competitive preference priority that would give extra points. Um, so the first priority is strengthening cross-agency coordination and community engagement to advance systemic change. So that's gonna be all about your partnerships to address your identified needs. Absolute priority two, again, this is mandatory, is promoting equity in student access to educational resources and opportunities. Um, and then the competitive preference priority for extra points, that's up to 10 extra points in addition to the regular selection criteria, wow. are meeting students' social, emotional, and academic needs. So this is very much meant to be a holistic approach that engages community stakeholders and organizations, other service providers, in uh, deploying this comprehensive approach to meeting students' basic needs. So information that a successful applicant would include, and again, you know, we just have one cycle to go on, six awardees, um, but the department does at the program webpage have funded abstracts or project summaries posted for those six awards. So folks can go and take a look and see, you know, what, what the review last cycle deemed compelling um, and competitive. Yeah. But, you know, it's basically any... The, the gist of the funded projects was that these, these institutions proposed to set up a sort of single stop shop on campus that would coordinate referrals to and access to all of these other supportive services, whether provided by the institution itself and or this suite of community partners. So I think two key things. The first is to know the target community, your target college community, to know what the issues are. Um, and that's going to be probably a combination of, of institutional and community level data. Um, if you have surveys of your students, if you know how you've dispersed peer funds to support students during the pandemic, um, public, publicly available data, uh, data from your partner, entities. Uh, and from there, you can clarify what the needs are. Um, but basically, they are in these core areas that the department has outlined, which is food security, housing security, transportation, health, including mental health, child care, dependent care, and technology. So it can be 
uh, any two or more of those things, depending on what the data shows you, um, but certainly using that data to present your, your case will be useful. And then I think the second important piece is showing your, your partnerships that you either are forming or have formed um, that can be used to address those specific needs. Um, so for things like food security, for example, one would expect to see partnerships maybe with local food banks, community gardens, access to entities that help with enrollment in programs like food stamps, WIC, um, if it were housing that were the identified need or one of the identified needs, you would expect to see partnerships with fair and affordable housing organizations. These might be nonprofit or governmental or both. Um, for things like healthcare, we would expect to see partnerships with those organizations that help individuals get health insurance coverage, maybe Department of Health or Human Services at the county level. Um, those kinds of partnerships. Something like childcare, you would expect to see things like coordination with, say, Head Start, programs that help individuals pay for childcare, and, and things of that nature. So those are just some basic okay. ideas. Yeah, no, that's, uh, so it sounds like, you know, it's, it's for basic needs, but it's certainly not a basic proposal. It sounds like the, the Department of Ed is rightly looking for applicants who really understand how to interlink the various services and particularly the federally funded services, right? So they can provide this, as you mentioned, one-stop shop for students. That's, yeah, that is correct. And, you know, it's interesting to note that three of the six uh, awards made last cycle were to institutions of higher ed in California. And each of those proposals spoke to some extent about homelessness as being one of their key issues, uh, just based on the, extreme rise in homelessness overall in the state of, of California in recent years. So, you know, that they did a very good job, those applicants, about zeroing in on issues that are specific to their institution and their community and making a, a data-based case to show the extent of those needs and then thoughtful partnerships that are clearly connected to addressing those needs. Got you. So it's a classic Department of Ed proposal. Really needs to be thought through, very explicit, and and showing the direct correlation between the the intervention and the and well, in this case, getting ba getting students' basic needs met. Absolutely, and you know, it's a, it's a little different in some respects from other Department of Ed grant programs in that we don't have such an extensive history of awards to. Um, to contemplate and to think, you know, this is what they usually go for, for this opportunity, you know, trends with making awards or not making awards or how review panels tend to behave or, or respond to content. Um, just, just one cycle with a small pool of awards to, to base it on. So, you know, there's a lot that is still pretty much undefined, I think, um, in, in terms of how the department will make these awards and it is highly competitive. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about uh, key dates. I know you said that it's about close to a million per year. Yes, 950,000 for a three year period, yep. Oh, that's such a random number, like. <laughs> is it surprising that this round up a little so, bit. I know, you're so close, but. So close. Uh, yeah. So this one is due, proposals are due here October 3rd. 
Um, so the it's currently open. I believe it opened um, earlier in August. Let's see here. Um, I don't think I have that date, but it posted earlier this month and it closes October 3rd of this year. So yeah, there there is still time left to put forward a good proposal, but those are the kinds of things that um, pr prospective applicants should absolutely be thinking about uh, any special IHE status, whether you're a minority serving institution or some other special designation, thinking about existing or planned partnerships at the government and community level to support student well-being, um, choosing at least two of the targeted areas of basic needs that your partnerships and your project will uh, address. Um, and then, you know, articulating what the specific services are that are going to be provided through which of those partners. Yeah, so a fair amount of work to be done, but can be done. Certainly, we know this business. Yes, mm -hmm. it can be done, but I would sooner than later is always best for a really compelling, polished final product. Yeah, yeah. So NSF always says, "Ask early, ask often." When you talk about working with program officers, I always like to say, you know, write early and, and revise often as you get these proposals ready. Especially Department of Ed, they're long still, right? Yes. Yep, that is very much true. And this one is um, a 50 page recommended limit because now these are all recommendations. Um, oh my gosh. Can't be booted out for, for not complying, but I would say come as close as possible to that. So it is, it is a bigger um, proposal. Uh, also, it might be worth mentioning that there is a notice of intent to apply. Um, and this is just to help. Um, the department to plan for reviewers and it's just by emailing the program contact to say that your institution is is going to apply you can still submit a full application if you don't submit the notice and if you submit the notice you don't have to then submit a full application if your circumstances should change mm -hmm. yeah if you're like three days from the deadline and you only have five pages written you don't have to apply <laughs> no stress. Right. it's not binding. <laughs> Yeah, and having worked at community college in the past, sorry to cut you off, Mallory, I know that, you know, sometimes getting ahead of these and working on these even a year early can be helpful, so. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to be completely frank, today is uh, August 16th. If you haven't started writing this yet, uh, what are you doing? No. <laughs> there goes your weekends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Susan, since you're our uh, Department of Education expert, uh, maybe I can just give your cell phone out right here on this podcast, and that way anybody can call you or text you with questions. Mallory, losing one friend at per per. <laughs> it's taken me many years to even remove my cell phone from my email signature, so I'm going to keep that momentum going and and stay under the radar. You know what I did recently that really helped me is I used to get uh, work emails sent to my phone constantly throughout the day. And I, I had to just kind of like change. So now the iPhones have that like focus time and you can change what kind of notifications you get. So I don't get any notifications about work emails after 5 p.m. Um, because oh, I, good. Yeah, because I really feel like, you know, especially coming out of COVID, there's been this extra kind of pressure for folks to kind of get back into the swing of things. And yeah. there is that like line between work life balance gets, you know, incredibly blurred. That has nothing to do with basic needs. Uh, but but it kind of does. It's, it, you know, I was gonna say, it's my basic need. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Self care. 
Um, well, Susan, before we let you go, and thanks for joining us today again. Um, but I just wanted to ask you, you know, you are the Department of Education expert here at Hanover. Um, what's your favorite program? Oh, gosh, that's a tough question. We're not going to make you uh, we're not going to make you get a, you know, tattoo of it or anything like that. I'm just kind of <laughs> curious because you've had so much exposure to programs that I've never even heard of. Yeah, you know, I like the, the some of the sort of defunct ones that are no longer around um, and they focused more in the K-12 space. So mm -hmm. we had the um, race to the top program uh, through the Obama years and we had the investing in innovation program, also an Obama era um, program. And those were really just about setting up new innovative programs in schools to close achievement gaps and, and help students um, succeed. But those, you know, they, they changed names over the years. And I think now the, the most accurate iteration is the uh, Education Innovation Research or the EIR. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's, I think it's still happening. Um, but I guess at the higher ed level, it would probably have to be the suite of, of TRIO programs. I, I find them a bit easier to, to write and, and hopefully to win. They're so formulaic. If you follow the instructions and you address the criteria, you should get your money. Yeah, I mean, it It seems so simple, but... <laughs> we know it is often not the case. Yes, yeah. Yes. Um, all right, well, Susan, thanks again for joining us uh, today. We're going to have you back again soon. Maybe we'll talk about one of your other favorite programs. I hope so. That would be great. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, thanks right. for sharing so much. Okay, take care. Everybody listen in for our next iteration. We're going to be talking with uh, Grants Consultant Paul Tuttle and Clinton Doggett. Uh, we're going to be talking on a regular episode of the Grant Rant about the fiscal year 2023 budget. So stay tuned for that. Mm -hmm.